Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I don't know about you, but I can't believe these pictures of the Japan Airlines plane that collided with a Coast Guard aircraft while landing in Tokyo yesterday. I mean, the entire jet was engulfed in flames. And yet, somehow... All 367 passengers and 12 crew members were evacuated safely. Not one casualty. Now, tragically, there were five people killed, Coast Guard members and others, in the other plane, and that was carrying aid for the earthquake relief because Japan had also been hit by this earthquake. But this was just miraculous. Almost the equivalent of Sully Sullenberger, you know, landing on the water in New York. All right, this is a globally important story. Deadline saying that at 12.01 a.m. this morning, that would be yesterday, the earliest iteration of one of the world's most beloved children's characters entered the public domain. Shortly thereafter, the trailer for a slasher film called Mickey Mouse's Trap, Mickey's Mouse Trap, was posted online in it. Now, this includes clips from Walt Disney's 1928 animated classic Steamboat Willie, shown interspersed with newly shot footage that tells the story of a mouse mask-wearing killer who stalks college-age kids. Well, this is what happens when the copyright expires. Like, nobody could legally touch Mickey Mouse and related characters. And now, at least this one outfit has morphed Mickey into a murderer. That is really chilling. Sean Hannity, on his radio show yesterday, confirming that he has moved full-time to Florida, where he will do his show from there. And Hannity said, for the first time in my adult life, I actually have representatives in the state that I'm living in that share my values. I have a governor by the name of Ron DeSantis and Senators Marco Rubio and Senator Rick Scott. We are now beginning our first broadcast from my new home, and that is in the free state of Florida. I am out. I am done. I am finished. New York, New York, goodbye. Florida, Florida. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. little play on the song about New York City. Now, this is getting a lot of attention online. It's uh, Instagram photos of Laura Trump, member of the family, from the New Year's Eve celebration at Mar-a-Lago. She is Eric Trump's wife. Now, how do I describe this? She is 
what Mediate calls wearing a remarkably revealing gown. Mother of two, showing off a well-toned figure. To be fair, she looks great, but she is getting trashed. Let me see if I can describe this. This is not just a low-cut gown. This is a gown that's uh, cut almost down to her navel. The amount of cleavage shown here is they need their own zip code. I mean, she's remarkably exposed. And there's two other things that give the indication that she's excited. That's all I'll say about that. You want to see it, check it out. So, uh, various randos on X. Writing, one writing, she can, but she should not. Another one, yikes, I'm proud of my wife, but this is a poor decision, way too far. And finally, this dress is trashy. So on the one hand, she looks good. On the other hand, maybe showing too much. Story number one. After waiting way too long, in my humble opinion, Claudine Gay resigned yesterday as the president of Harvard University. It is with a heavy heart but a deep love for Harvard that I write to share I will be stepping down, she wrote. Difficult decision, but after consultations with members of the Harvard Corporation, it's become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. That first reported by the Harvard Crimson. Now, before I even go on, of course it is pretty clear that the board, known as the Harvard Corporation, which had done everything it could to save Claudine Gay, which had ignored all kinds of evidence to save Claudine Gay, which wanted to make sure that Harvard's first black president did not have to resign and save Claudine Gay, finally told her she had to resign. This was not a voluntary move on her part. There was just simply no way. Now remember, this all started when she went up to Capitol Hill and along with two other presidents, one of them UPenn's Elizabeth McGill, who resigned days after this, refused to say, repeatedly refused to condemn anti-Semitism on their campuses. They would say, well, it depends on the context. And they would say, you know, uh, I personally find this abhorrent, but, and we have free speech and we have to uphold. It was just an appalling performance. But for some reason, Christine Gay survived that. I still say that Neither she nor Elizabeth McGill, Elizabeth McGill should pay the law firm that advised them to do this. The very next day, the pressure was so intense, the reviews were so bad, it was so outrageous that they had to apologize. They had to take back, in effect, everything they said and, and issue these statements saying, of course, there is no place for anti-Semitism on campus. Precisely what they refused to say 
under repeated questioning. But then came the allegations of plagiarism against Gay. And university officials say Gay asked the board to conduct an independent review since the board would report to her. And so they got some outside researchers who came back, three political scientists, announced that Gay would request corrections to some work to include missing citations or quotations. But it said, no, this was not misconduct. Just those early plagiarism allegations By themselves, you know, these euphemisms again about, you know, inadequate attribution were just a pile of BS. Any student at Harvard would have been expelled for doing the same thing that Gay did. And yet it looked like she was going to survive. The board was like, oh, okay, you know, no misconduct, it's fine, never mind. But then, the Washington Free Beacon and social media posts by activist Christopher Rufo, going to this Washington Post story, led to more scrutiny. A House committee launched an investigation. And that found, you know, she has this very small body of published work. And about half of her publications involved this so-called improper attribution, but this one was from her 1997 dissertation. This is how she became a PhD. And in residing, Claudine Gay did play the race card. She said her decision to resign was based partially on personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. But Elizabeth McGill was in the same situation, and she's white. And others are playing the race card on her behalf. She was not fired because she is black, despite claims of racism being made now by her and her allies. She was fired because the situation was untenable. It could not continue. You can't have... the president of perhaps the most important and storied university in the country committing serial plagiarism. Unless you change the rules retroactively to say what's allowed and what's not allowed. Now, part of what happened here was that all of the university presidents were aggressively questioned by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who took to social media to say, two down, quoting Gay's morally bankrupt answers to my questions made history as the most viewed congressional testimony in the history of the U.S. Congress. 
and Gay just refused to answer yes when she asked for whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated their university's codes of conduct on bullying and harassment. And remember that unbelievably misguided, dumb, and obviously liberal SNL skit in which the actress playing Claudine Gay, after a uh, more experienced SNL regular, refused to do it the last minute made her look like an idiot. It was, it was Elise Stefanik who was crazed. It was Elise Stefanik who was out of control, not the mealy-mouthed responses of the three university presidents. I wonder if SNL will do an updated skit now. New York Times talks about how she is the second Ivy Leaguer, leader excuse me, to lose her job amid a firestorm intensified by the widely derided congressional testimony. Her stint was the shortest. She's only been there since July of any president since Harvard was founded in 1636. Lengthening catalog of plagiarism allegations appeared to steadily sap her support among the university's faculty, students, and alumni, all of whom, most of whom, had originally defended her. But for many of Dr. Gay's critics, her departure was also a proxy victory in the escalating ideological battle over American higher education. Taking down Gay was a huge scalp in the fight for civilizational sanity, said conservative talk show host Josh Hammer. A crushing loss to DEI wokeism, anti-Semitism, and the university elitism, said conservative commentator Liz Wheeler. This is the beginning of the end for DEI in America's institutions, said activist Christopher Rufo. Till last month, conservative-inspired efforts to, make, to remake higher education that had folded primarily at public universities in right-leaning states such as Florida and Texas. But Gay's resignation secured their movement as a signal victory at the country's most prominent private university. But here's the thing. Oh, here's uh, Khalil Gibran Mohammed at Harvard's Kennedy School. This is a terrible moment. Republican congressional leaders have declared war on the independence of colleges and universities, just as Governor DeSantis has done in Florida. They will only be emboldened by Gay's resignation. I'm sorry, if you're saying this is all the conservatives' fault, there were prominent Democrats, such as Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, who demanded, in his case, that McGill from UPenn resign. You can't say why. I mean, obviously some of these conservatives are crowing about this. But the people who blame the attackers, the critics, are not defending what Claudine Gay did. There's no defense for what Claudine Gay did. It wasn't one or two papers in which he committed plagiarism. It was a whole series, half her published output, as I said. 
Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Story two. Donald Trump asked the court yesterday to reverse that attempt by Maine's Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, longtime Democrat, Biden ally, to keep his name off the primary ballot. And the way it works here is, since no court was involved, um, Trump has to first appeal through the main courts. State law requires the superior court to decide by January 17th. Then we go to the top court in Maine and then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't understand why Donald Trump has not already appealed the Colorado Supreme Court decision to SCOTUS because there was a supposed deadline of a couple days when the ballots are supposed to be printed. And inevitably will be decided by the Supreme Court, in my view. There's no way that SCOTUS lets this stand. But Trump's lawyers have, I guess, not finished their brief on that front. Now, when I was on Special Report last night, I talked about this USA Today poll. Joe Biden losing all these key demographic groups to Donald Trump. Some people who are leaving Biden are opting for a third-party candidate. But there was also a poll by Washington Post and the University of Maryland. Republicans are showing increased loyalty to the former president. They are now less likely to believe that January 6th participants were, quote, mostly violent, less likely to believe that Trump bears responsibility for the attack, and are slightly less likely to view Joe Biden's election as legitimate compared to a survey by these two institutions back at the end of 2021. In follow-up interviews, some said their views had changed because they now believe the riot was instigated by law enforcement to suppress political dissent. This is a completely bogus conspiracy theory that's been promoted by Trump and by conservative media. Democrats largely agree that the riot was a violent threat to democracy, as you would expect. Oh, look at this. When the Post and uh, the university asked at the end of 2021 whether Biden was legitimately elected, 69% of Americans said he was. Now that's down to 62%. Okay, slightly fewer Republicans today 31% say Biden's election was legitimate compared with 2021, 39%. More than a third of Americans, 36%, do not accept Biden's victory as legitimate. I guess I sort of knew that, but it's just something to see it in black and white. Several voters interviewed by the Post said there was evidence of voter fraud. 
such as the totally false and debunked claim that two Georgia election workers were caught on video putting fake ballots into machines. These are the women who just won a $148 million judgment against Rudy Giuliani for spreading those defamatory claims that even Rudy's lawyer does not defend. Most Americans, 55%, believe the storming of the Capitol was an attack on democracy should never be forgotten. But most Republicans and Trump voters reject that view. More than 7 in 10 Republicans say too much is being made of the attack and that it is time to move on. Only 18% of Republicans say the January 6th protesters were mostly violent. So the passage of time the arguments of Trump, the steadfastness of his Republican supporters has really um, changed these views. And that's why he still has this huge lead. Story number three. You know, what I'm about to tell you is a tale of the media throwing into the towel when it comes to Iowa. Now, of course, you all know about the poll numbers, Trump's lead, Trump's lead nationally. And you'll remember the New York Times ran that sort of advanced political obituary for Ron DeSantis, for whom everything is now being bet on the state of Iowa. But listen to the language. First, Politico. The biggest news in the Republican presidential primary on Tuesday was that an obscure New Hampshire restaurateur was jumping ship from Chris Christie's campaign to Nikki Haley's. As if it mattered. Two weeks before the Iowa caucuses, the defining feature of the race is just how uncompetitive it's become for a guy who thrives on dra uh, drama. Donald Trump is now polling above 60% nationally among Republican primary voters. Rather than sweat it out, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump rang in the new year at Mar-a-Lago taking in a performance of a rapping Vanilla Ice and a dancing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Very important piece of color there. The former president will arrive in Iowa having already iced the rest of the field, trouncing his competitors down the home stretch of what it seemed like for months, like a slow motion coronation. Listen to these words. Ice the rest of the field. Slow motion coronation. Now here is Doug Gross, GOP operative, who supports Nikki Haley. Trump defies all political gravity and rules and consistently has, both nationally as well as in the state of Iowa. And that's why he's in the position he's in, because he has a strong base following and a strong brand and knows how to play the fiddle. So, that is basically a prediction with almost no caveats that Trump wins Iowa easily. And then 
New Hampshire would be the one state where Nikki Haley might get close to him or overtake him. But you get, even if you're Donald Trump, you get a burst of momentum for winning the Iowa caucuses, which he lost in 2016. Okay, Washington Post. The frenzy of activity in the last stretch before the Iowa caucuses belies a growing sense among political veterans that the basic outcome is set and a Trump victory is all but assured, even though the former president is campaigning much less aggressively than his rivals. And now this story does have some caveats, some warn against crowning Trump just yet. But many Republicans have their sights uh, on subplots that underscore the unusual dearth of intrigue over who will win. Such as, what would a victorious Trump winning margin be? And can anyone else claim the nomination in the long-shot effort to stop him from winning the nomination? Can anyone else claim momentum, I should have said? A closer-than-expected contest could still upend the race, throwing DeSantis a lifeline or elevating Haley. But resignation is already setting in among some Republicans who support Trump's challengers without a single vote cast. This year's race has felt very different, with a lack of swings and surprises that has at times prompted a collective yawn in the states. In the state, even Iowans are. Uh, Aboard. Trump established himself as a dominant favorite here months ago, and Republicans on the ground say they have yet to see evidence of a major shift. Trump expanding his lead to 30 points. Now, National Review editor Rich Lowry takes a broader view, saying Trump's opponents are, are sincerely, and to some extent understandably, alarmed by his conduct after the 2020 election and how he's branded his political comeback as a revenge tour. For most of them, though, saving democracy doesn't mean upholding the rules no matter what and letting the voters decide the election. No, it means blocking Donald Trump by any means necessary, regardless of the consequences for the rule of law, democratic politics, or faith in our system of government. In this view, democracy has only one legitimate outcome, and it doesn't involve Donald Trump back at 1600 Pennsylvania. Some Democrats, says Rich, uh, deserve minimal credit for distancing themselves from the Colorado and Maine decisions striking Trump from the ballot and arguing that the right way to defeat Trump is via the voting booth. What's already happened has put the country in an unprecedented place. It is hard to imagine what's more extreme than one side in our politics indicting its leading opponent, creating the real prospect of jailing him in the months prior to an election, and excluding him from the ballot in select states. So I would just argue with one term that Lowry uses here, because I basically agree that it is an act of desperation and purely anti-democratic to use the 14th Amendment to declare Donald Trump to be an insurrectionist, something he's not been criminally charged with, and say he cannot be on the ballots in Colorado and Maine and perhaps other states. And that is when he said more extreme than one side in our politics, indicting its leading opponent. It makes it sound like they're all the same. That like, you know, it's the Trumpian view that Joe Biden told DOJ to do this. There's zero evidence of that. 
Um, I agree. I hate the uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg case with Stormy Daniels. But yes, it is true that it is all Democrats doing this. In the case of Maine and Colorado, a, a Democratic, an all Democratic appointed court and a Democratic Secretary of State. In the case of New York, an, uh, an elected Democratic DA. In the case of Georgia, a Democratic Fulton County prosecutor. But the, the implication that they're all part of the same team, I think, is a little much. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. I didn't get to this yesterday because we, was talking, we were talking about the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza. Partial, of course. A few thousand troops to begin with. But Israel's Supreme Court struck down a law limiting its own powers. Now, before the war began, Bibi Netanyahu's conservative government had passed a law limiting how the country's highest court and under what circumstances it could rule against the government of Netanyahu. And the court ruled eight to seven against Bibi, threw the situation into disarray, and reignited the Grave domestic turmoil, says the New York Times, that began over a year ago. Remember those pictures of massive demonstrations in the streets? Huge political upheaval because it was seen as anti-democratic. So it barred judges from using a particular legal standard to overrule decisions made by top government officials. And here's the broader point. Netanyahu's political allies and their supporters want to make Israel into a more religious and nationalist state. Their opponents, who hold a more secular and pluralistic, excuse me, pluralist view of the country, accuse the government of undermining democracy by lowering the barriers to a majority doing whatever it pleases. The ruling was swiftly denounced by Netanyahu's allies. The Prime Minister's Likud party said the decision was in opposition to the nation's desire for unity, especially in a time of war. Okay, it is a time of war, but, you know, the basic playbook here for Bibi is to say for everything, we'll deal with it after the war. We'll deal with it later. This is not the time. And the desire for unity line is laughable because it's the move itself to completely reshape and defang an independent judiciary that was against any semblance of unity. In fact, the uh, Times goes on to say that Netanyahu's argument against just about every critic of his performance to discuss everything after the war means they'll have little practice ruling by the high court will have a little practical effect. But it does, the court and the war are connected because they're both crucial to Israel's future and its future identity. What kind of country is this going to be? And finally, 
Israel, or at least uh, U.S. and other officials, and Hamas, say that a senior Hamas leader was killed yesterday in Lebanon. And Lebanon, you know, has been, the Hamas operating in Lebanon has fired, continued to fire rockets at Israel. And this does raise the question of an escalation on that front. Despite Joe Biden's balancing act, and we have the uh, Houthis in Yemen, also an Iranian proxy, continuously mounting attacks against ships in the Red Sea. And the U.S. has been acting defensively. So, as I said to Brett Baer, Joe Biden may want to prevent a widening war, but I'm sorry, it's already here. Number five, Senator Robert Menendez. The Democrat already accused of using his political influence to benefit Egypt was charged with a new indictment yesterday accusing him of using his power to help the government of Qatar. Charged by federal prosecutors with accepting bribes from a prominent New Jersey developer in exchange for the senator's help in securing financial backing from an investment firm with uh, ties to the Qatari government. When he accepted uh, certain of those things of value, said prosecutors, This developer also expected Menendez in exchange to take action to benefit the government of Qatar and thereby benefit him, who was seeking millions from this investment fund. So he had been the chairman of Senate Foreign Relations, and now the case gets even broader. Also suggests for the first time in the indictment that the senator and his wife took steps to try to cover up the alleged bribery after federal agents raided their New Jersey home last year. They started to repay tens of thousands of dollars worth of bribes that had come in the form of payments for a home mortgage and for a Mercedes-Benz convertible. They created documentation describing the original bribes as loans that they were repaying, the indictment says. And here's the kicker. MSNBC host Alicia Menendez was on the air yesterday. And she is the daughter of Senator Menendez. And she had already announced that she will have nothing to do with coverage of her father's case. And I feel sympathy for her. But she happened to be subbing as an anchor during the hour that this news broke about the new indictment of her dad. And so she said near the end of the show, but not at the end of the show, um, that there is some breaking news coming up. That's all she said. It went to commercial, it came back, and instead of Menendez, viewers saw Ari Melber, the host of the next show, picking up the coverage. As a result, though, MSNBC viewers, in order to prevent this conflict, had to delay 
the Menendez News for about an hour. And it just shows you the very, very difficult, perhaps even untenable situation that Alicia Menendez, who's trying to do the right thing here, is in when that story broke while she was on the air. Well, thanks for sticking with me. So much news here these days that I can't get to everything, but I try to give you the most important things and some fun stuff. Always appreciate your time. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 